Hello there, Strange Stories UK here. Well, it's Christmas Eve, and as is traditional this time of year, it's time for a ghost story. I seem to remember that the reason for the traditional ghost story was that everything was so well with the world, and it was necessary for a corrective, a worm in the bud. One of my favourite novellas is Henry James' Turn of the Screw which is a group of men telling stories around the fire on Christmas Eve, just as the year is dying, and what stories are told. Tonight, for example, on TV, on BBC4, you have a couple of wonderful ghost stories for Christmas by M.R. James from the 1970s, wonderfully filmed by Lawrence gordon Clark and Rosemary Hill, always a highlight of Christmas in my household, as they have so much atmosphere. This year, 2018, Mark Gatiss has a new ghost story for Christmas on BBC4. I think it should be good, given his past efforts. Well, this is my attempt for this Christmas. These are true ghost stories. The first directly experienced by myself, although perhaps nothing. It made me think for a long time afterwards. The second story I was told, and with perhaps an explanation. I recently read that 40% of the UK population believed that a house could be haunted. What does this figure mean? Is there a spectrum to this figure? Do those who definitely believe and those that definitely don't believe rest opposite ends of the scale? Are the mass of people between somewhere in between? What I'm sure of is that if such a list was correct then I tended towards the hard end of the sceptic camp if I could call it that. I'd enjoyed reading ghost stories when I was younger, once scared myself watching a ghost film on television, The Innocents, an adaptation of the Henry James novella, and I discovered the delights of the tandem horror books. But the interest in ghosts faded as I reached adolescence. However, I'm always interested to read of a haunted house story, and so in consideration of haunted houses, I'd like to share with you the experience of a long weekend away I enjoyed with friends a few years back, in the month of November. A weekend when the top of the hauntings came up on numerous occasions. We had a building booked from Friday to Monday. The building was said to be part of an old castle, but was in fact an old fortified manor with huge thatched roof, thought to be the oldest inhabited building in Dorset. We called it the farmhouse. I was sharing with five friends, all members of a pub quiz team. If successful, our prize winnings were banked until we had sufficient funds to enjoy a weekend away, such as the weekend in question. Usually we went away without the distraction of partners or children, but for this visit partners were welcomed if they wanted to come. This weekend turned out to be our haunted house weekend. During these breaks away, we would eat fine meals, which we would take turns to prepare. We drank far too much wine and talked and discussed all topics. The more controversial, the better. During daylight hours, we would go out on sorties to places of interest, 
I would browse old bookshops, auctions, antique shops, and visit local public houses. Sometimes we would go as a group, other times we would break into smaller groups and exchange our experiences during the evening, generally putting the words to rights. The strangest thing happened the evening I arrived. It was a November evening, and the traffic had been heavy on that Friday evening, as I travelled from Brighton with my wife. The A27 could be a pick on a Friday evening. I wasn't expecting to be the first person to arrive, but the place was in darkness when I arrived, save for an outside light on the front door. The key was in the allotted place. I'm afraid the standards of behaviour tend to drop on such weekends, and personalities tend to become competitive. Having entered and discovered that being the first to arrive, I had the choice of bedrooms. I sank to my knees, clenched my fists and a cry of delight. Yes! Which echoed through the huge sitting room. As I did so, an object was projected at some force across the room and hit the wall near the fireplace. Somewhat taken aback, I searched for the object and found a small round knob which I matched to a large oak dresser at the opposite end of the room. The knob was obviously used to open a cabinet, part of a huge sideboard that dominated that side of the room. I could not understand how the knob flew across the room. It seemed to be in response to my cry which disturbed the profound silence in the building. The others arrived, and so the weekend commenced. The incident was mentioned but dismissed as the others settled into their rooms, opened bottles of wine and swapped stories about their journeys that night. Fire was lit and rough plans were made for cooking duties and the places of interest to visit. The farmhouse had a good selection of books on local topography, places to visit, those being thumbed through while the books on famous local literature, which included Ina Blyton, were for some reason ignored. There were also log books, these being a log or a diary of the people that had stayed at the farmhouse, listing what they had done during their stay. Sometimes the entries were children giving their opinions and observe observations with colourful drawings. Other entries gave detailed information and recommended places to visit, restaurants to avoid, and other useful tips. There were several entries on ghosts and supposed paranormal experienced experience within the building. In fact, during the course of our stay, I counted roughly 35 over a 10-year period. Most of it was jokey, as the building would have been the archetypal setting for a haunted house for a lot of people. Only one of our gr group of six had sympathy for non-scientific explanations for the paranormal. However, everyone was able to give examples of a strange unexplained events that they had experienced or had known. And I told them again of what happened when I arrived and showed the knob handle of the cabinet which I had replaced. The cyborg was examined, the experiment was repeated with, without results, and soon forgotten by the others as quotes from the various logbooks were read aloud. We spent part of the next day looking for a virtually unknown Roman mosaic under a corrugated iron in a desolate farmer's field in deepest Wiltshire. Without asking permission from the landowner, we embarked on a muddy walk to examine and photograph the remains of the mosaic before making our way back to the cars. 
On the way back, we stopped at an old stone pub in Chilmark to sample the local bitter. We had a little earlier driven through the army town of Tidworth. The subject of the Tidworth drummer was brought up, apparently a case of poltergeist nocturnal drumming, a famous case from the 17th century. Could that have been the watershed between medieval superstition and restoration science? Spurred on by some of the entries from the logbook in the farmhouse, and so the subject of ghosts came up yet again that weekend. Our conversation examined the reasons that some people may believe in ghosts. Was it optical illusions, moonlight, mental illness, hallucinations, magnetic fields? All the usual arguments being discussed. Even Plato's theory of forms was cited. The concept of the universal laws were discussed. An argument was put forward that as soon as we think we've discovered the answers, for example mass, gravity and time, the ground shifts and new questions present themselves. Are universal laws in a state of flux as to render them meaningless? One of our group was more amenable to the concept of the paranormal. They put forward an interesting theory of lost ability, as he called it. He said that some people, especially children and animals, retain echoes of ancient knowledge. The argument being that people have forgotten how to tune in beyond sight or hearing. Human senses are narrowly tuned and people operate like a radio sets that can only receive a narrow bandwidth among all the available wavelengths that are possible. Parallel states may exist. Quantum jumping may be possible when the inner self goes from one dimension to another through portals. The ancient, civilization, the ancient civilizations knew this, and there are references to ghosts in the literature of all the ancient civilizations. However, apart from the Iliad, he wasn't able to give any examples that we could relate to. The Tidworth drummer, if indeed that was a relevant example, was the only one. This was indicative of the conversations discussed. I would have been happy to discuss football, but nobody else would have been interested. This was a non-football group. The discussion continued until a general consensus was reached that we cannot judge others because we cannot know what's outside our own experiences. Someone saying that he preferred unsolved mysteries to pseudo-scientific explanations. Then one of our group, David, told an intriguing story that his father had shared with him. Of us, but a valued member of our pub quiz team. We got to know him via the pub, as we had poached him from another team. He was a good company, well informed, and sport and popping music being his two of his specialities. David's father was called Robert and was interested in the paranormal and belonged to an organisation that investigated cases thought to involve paranormal activity. The case he told us about happened some time back, 1950 or around then. His father had fought in the last year of the Second World War as aircrew in Bomber Command. David didn't know why he went along with these subtle research investigations to study the paranormal, or the supernatural as he had referred to it. He was a sidekick to the actual researcher. I'm not absolutely sure what he did. It was measuring rooms, taking temperature readings, 
operating a tape recorder, note-taking, that sort of thing. I think it needed at least two people to be there in order to back each other up. The case was a haunting at a dance hall called the Regal in the Greater Manchester area. At the time, this dance hall gave dance lessons in the early evening and then it was a dance free-for-all later. I think it was open every day except Sunday. It was quite popular and there were quite a few dance halls around the country at the time. This being an age when people had to search out their entertainment away from the home. Jitterbog and Lindy Hop, I'm not sure if they mean the same thing, were particularly popular. The dance hall was run by a woman and a tough guy who used to be a boxer. David called him Mad Tony. <coughs> the woman was called Mrs Brown. It turns out all sorts of strange things were taking place at the Regal. Furniture was being damaged during the night. Things kept going missing. People were heard and seen walking after the place had closed and during dance sessions. A particular striking feature of this case being phantom faces. That is, faces were seen in the glass ceiling and in mirrors by some people. David's father stayed a night there with the actual researcher, whose name was Colin. It was not that comfortable, but they had an old army camp beds and sandwiches. They were asleep under a balcony where the band played. Apparently the room was just a, a bit of a dump, and it was damp. After they set up their equipment, they just had to wait and record anything that happened. During the early hours of the morning, there was a weird noise. I think it shook them both up, but it turned out to be a dripping tap or drains or something like that. Robert said it was a noisy building, with the wind whistling and mysteriously, mysterious creaks and noises but nothing he could call paranormal. David said apparently it was pretty much the same story on all the research visits that the researchers made. I don't imagine they would have got much sleep in them, and in the morning they searched for other signs of paranormal activity, because automatic writing, or rather automatic crosses, had been seen appearing on the walls that then had gradually faded away. Colin and Robert tried to see if it was an optical illusion, a trick of the light, reflections from the glass or the, from the mirrors or shadows that appeared as, as daylight came, but they didn't see anything. I think they only stayed one night. When the owner, Mrs Brown, turned up at the dance hall later that evening, Colin gave her a rundown of what happened during the previous night, which of course was nothing much had happened. Colin and Robert had a long talk with Mrs Brown, who was a partner in the business. The other partner, I can't remember his name, had injured himself quite badly at the dance hall. He had fallen through a glass ceiling panel where the faces had been seen. He had been trying to fix a leak. During an evening when a dance was in progress previous to this, a glass panel had crashed to the floor during a dance session, nearly hitting dancers. When the glass panel was checked by workmen, it said that the panels were all firmly fixed and they could not fall unless they had been tampered with. This was not possible unless they were lower to the ground and there was no opportunity for anyone to do this. So, all rather odd. As the accident happened during the dance night, it was a bit of a disaster for the business and the partner spent about four months in hospital recovering from his injuries. 
It was at this time Mrs Brown asked Tony what he thought was going on. And he replied he thought the place was haunted. It turned out that Tony had been sleeping at the dance hall. He had lodgings not far away, but he had suspected sabotage and expected to catch somebody breaking in. It was some weeks that he'd slept there, and it was during this time that he realised, or at any rate came to the conclusion, that the place was haunted. He had been kept awake by inexplicable sounds, footsteps, doors banging, that sort of thing, even though the place was locked up. Other strange things were going on, such as he was aware of movements around him. On one occasion, when he was investigating a sound, it seemed the door was being held open for him by an unseen figure. There were also the faces he saw in the ceiling, and out of the corner of his eyes and mirrors as he passed them. Mrs Brown told him that he had an overactive imagination, but she decided to stay there a night with him. She took a friend with her also to see if any, if they would experience anything more to put Tony's mind at rest than anything else, though. During that night, her friend heard things and claimed to see a light in the main hall. But Mrs Brown did not experience anything untoward and made light of such things. However, she had a shock when she went to the main hall in the morning as a crucifix had appeared in the wall and then another was seen before gradually fading before their eyes. This event convinced Mrs Brown that the place was haunted. At this time, Mrs Brown and her friend saw faces just as Tony had described. She also said that there seemed to be a malignant atmosphere around the dance hall. Mitzhaps, mitzhaps continued. Electric appliances stopped working for no apparent reason. Money and small items were always disappearing. People stopped coming and the business began to lose money. It seemed that there was a jinx on the place. This is around the time they asked for the society to investigate. When asked if anyone else thought the place to be haunted, Mrs Brown said that she avoided discussing the matter with outsiders in case it had an adverse effect on the business. But she thought that others knew about the haunting. It had been mentioned to her that the building had been used as a chapel in the past and that perhaps the spirits associated with the building may disapprove of it being used for dancing. Mrs Brown knew of a girl who came frequently to the dance hall who told Tony that she'd seen an apparition at the piano and that the hall was haunted. But when Mrs Brown spoke to her about it, she denied seeing anything. Mrs Brown had told Colin that sometimes Tony acted in a strange manner. He seemed to go into a trance and speak strangely. And one night he called at a house saying that something had followed him and he seemed quite shaken. Mrs Brown said that she thought Tony was very suggestible in such things like that and that he relied upon her both psychologically and materially after she befriended him and given him a job at the dance hall. She'd even given him a place to stay for a while when he was searching for lodgings. Connor remarked later to Robert that it must have been an acute disappointment that Tony had not made the dance hall a success as he had not been able to justify the belief that Mrs Brandon had in him. It was probably a great relief to Tony to be able to attribute the failure of the dance hall to an extended, external, I beg your pardon, supernatural causes, which Robert felt was quite a shrewd analysis. 
Mrs. Brown then gave a resume of the people that had knowledge of the phenomena at the building. This included a boundsman who'd stopped coming, who'd remarked that there was something in the loft, and others that had seen and heard things and knew of the haunting. Colin and Robert spent most of the next day trying to contact people who'd experienced the phenomena, trying to get some corroboration for the idea that the hall was haunted. They talked to quite a few people who Tony said would back up their story, but it all boiled down to nothing. People had heard rumours, they felt the atmosphere, but nobody had actually seen anything. Some people had even denied ever talking to Tony and Mrs Brown. However, Robert thought that Tony had believed in the building that was haunted. He'd even tried to get a Catholic priest to perform an exorcism. Well, not an exorcism, a blessing. Colin talked to the local police and the editor of the local newspaper. They knew of the rumours and the history of the building. They were quite a useful source of information. They said that the building was originally a school, after that a chapel. Then it was empty for years until it became a dance hall. They thought it was a poor building to be used as a dance hall. It was the wrong design. The dance hall did well during the war, making a profit from the American troops that liked to use it. But since then it had struggled, and there was a much better modern dance hall nearby called the Majestic. The present owners had only had it a couple of years, and it had been in those two years that it gained a reputation of being haunted. Robert said the place, the building was poorly maintained, and it badly needed a makeover. The upshot was that Colin thought that it was a case of hallucination on the part of Tony. Seems that Colin had come across that sort of thing in the past. It's quite common. In fact, Robert thought that most cases they investigated were the result of an over-fertile imagination. Tony was asked to see a psychiatrist by the society. Apparently that was not unusual. There are shrinks kept on standby by the society. Robert said that the shrink thought Tony had a, a odd personality and that Tony thought that he had psychic ability. He was a seer, a sort of prophet. Anyway, the shrink tried out some simple tests on Tony, such as holding up fingers behind his back and asking Tony how many. Tony seemed confident, but only achieved chance results. When the society investigates a case, there's normally more than one visit. When the next investigation discovered nothing and came to the same conclusion as Colin and Robert, the investigation was put to one side and quietly forgotten about. A few months after this, the building was sold. The new owner ran a chain of dance halls and he invested money in the building, increased the staff and the business started to pick up. During renovations, a disused sewer was discovered close to where Tony slept. It's quite a runway for rats. Anyway, there were no more accounts of haunting since the new ownership. The bottom line was that only three people had seen any haunting phenomena. When the people at the society read the report from the psychiatrist and discussed the case, they came up with a theory. They thought that although there was no haunting or reliable unexplained phenomena, there was neither deliberate fraud. Those claiming to experience the haunting were genuinely frightened and anxious to be rid of it. Rid of it. 
The people claiming to experience haunting were, of course, Mrs. Brown, her friend, and Tony. Tony was the person who began the story of the haunting and persisted with it until Mrs. Brown and her friend became convinced. The psychiatrist suggested that there was something psychologically odd about Tony in that he didn't seem to be a balanced personality. Tony claimed to possess psychic powers, especially premonitions, and when the dance force started to have problems, Tony transferred his inner conflict to the historical projection of ghostly visions to excuse his own failure. For a while, the phenomena was convincing to no one except himself, but such was the conjunction of external circumstances that Mrs. Brown eventually saw them also. Everyone else saw the problems for what they were, a series of misfortunes caused by lack of business acumen, staffing inefficiencies, petty pilfering and sabotage. Mrs. Brown was a businesswoman who ran a hairdressing business and took on the dance hall as a sideline. She asserted so often and so voluble that she was an experienced business organiser that no one felt she was trying to convince herself that the failure of the dance hall was not due to her incompetence. Mrs. Brown and her friend were suggestible people and once a hallucinatory experience had been precipitated, others followed. Shadows on the wall and the ceiling formed the basis of the faces seen. Mrs. Brown and her friend Tony asserted that they all saw the same face, but when closely examined and questioned separately, descriptions did not tally. Colin found that in experiments with Mrs. Brown, when given a suitable lead, he could make Mrs. Brown see faces whenever he suggested. The psychologist who later saw Mrs. Brown and Tony performed similar experiments and found he could make them see faces in a darkened room after he'd given them leads. It was concluded that hallucinations could be easily induced in people in sufficiently suggestible atmosphere. In this instance, the hallucinations were built up from light and shade effects in much the same way as figures can be seen in ink blocks. Mrs. Brown's friend was not questioned too closely. She'd recently lost a son and kept seeing his face and found the experiments painful, so the investigators did not pry too closely. The society concluded the case by saying that although there was probably not deliberate deception, there were three factors that came together to cause the perception of a haunting. Firstly, Tony was the instigator, an active agent if you like. Secondly, Mrs. Brown and her friend were persons susceptible to hallucinations and suitably suggestible. And finally, there was external circumstances, the run of bad luck, the mishaps which seemed to confirm the idea of a haunting. There was also the unconscious motive of all concerned to find some scapegoat for the failure of the business. Colin told us that his brother said that it was not an unusual outcome. Psychological problems often proved to be the foundations of an alleged haunting. When we asked Robert if his brother experienced anything, sorry, his father had experienced anything that could be defined as bona fide or haunting, he thought not. When David finished his story, I said that we had two days in which to do our own investigation. We were staying in a supposedly haunted house, 
so we were ideally placed to come to our own conclusions. I actually, for the first time in my life, experienced some unexplained activity. So could we keep an objective view and observe other unexplained activity? Disappointingly, and perhaps unsurprisingly, most effort was spent in devising practical jokes. A contraption was devised by one of the group to tap windows while somebody was in the room by themselves. Of course, small objects flying across the room were not a rare occurrence over the next couple of days. And as soon as someone's attention was diverted, something would be flung against the wall to much hilarity. The moment seemed to have passed. Our chance to broaden the knowledge of paranormal activity was lost. Any supernatural entity that may have existed in the building seemed to have accepted our sceptical outlook and did not challenge it. Even if it did manage to summon the energy to manifest something, would it have been noticed given the practical joking, the alcohol-induced sleep over the next couple of nights? As to my paranormal experience that weekend, nothing could satisfactorily explain what had occurred. However, I went at great lengths to explaining it in the logbook, along with the detailed illustrations. The property we stayed at was Woodsford Castle in the Froome Valley, east of Dorchester. It was built in 1337, the largest thatched building in the UK. Thomas Hardy's father helped to restore it. We visited the Thomas Hardy cottage nearby, where the author lived. It was a time capsule. You can imagine being in the late 18th century whilst you were there. The best bottle of wine consumed, according to my diary, was a Malbec, a Patrimon Santiago Grafigna. It was wonderful. The taste of coconut. So thank you, Stuart. Well... All it remains me to do is to thank Damselfly for providing the background music and wish you all a very Merry Christmas and thank you again for listening. Goodbye.